We'll be looking at Matthew 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 5 this morning. Text is on the next page of the bulletin, or you can grab a Bible in the back if you need one of those, if you didn't bring one. Um, So we're looking at the end of 9, the beginning of 10. And I've said this before, uh, but I hope that this will be helpful to you in your own Bible reading and study. Sort of remember this when you're reading through sort of larger books of the Scriptures. Um, Chapter and verse numbers are not part of the original text of Scriptures. They're not inspired so to speak, uh, chapter and verse numbers, they're, they're, they're meant to be helpful for navigating, you know, so finding what you're looking for uh, in larger books of the Bible instead of just saying somewhere in the middle, um, you know, you have some kind of reference that you can go to or uh, communicate to somebody else to find what you're looking for. But uh, sometimes these uh, divisions uh, create artificial visual or psychological breaks that are unhelpful to us. Uh, maybe even more than unhelpful, maybe even detrimental to our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, When you look at this chapter division in your Bible, uh, it's easy to stop reading at the end of chapter 9 and say, you know, I'll pick up chapter 10 uh, some other time. Looks like it's about some other thing. Big old old chapter. I'm not going to read that today. You end uh, with chapter 9. And by the time you do return to chapter 10, you know, you might have forgotten details from what you previously read at the end of chapter 9. That happens pretty commonly. Um, but those details are uh, really often so important that, uh, that they're connections that we need to see, we need to understand in order to understand the scriptures that we're reading. So at the end of chapter 9, <clears throat> um, the last paragraph of chapter 9 really talks about Jesus having compassion on the crowds. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, Matthew records Jesus sending out his 12 disciples, the apostles, those are not two sermons about totally two, you know, diff- different ideas. Um, one, you know, on Jesus' compassion, the other on the disciples' calling and commission. Jesus' compassion manifests itself in sending out his disciples. That's what we're meant to see with these paragraphs put together. The mission that he sends us on is the avenue for his shepherding love to take place in the world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. <clears throat> uh, let's pray first, then we can read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, help us uh, not only to perceive the truth of your word, but to believe it, to take to heart what we read, what we hear from you, to be changed by your word in our relationship with you. We pray for your spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot, and 
Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So here we have Jesus going around the region of Galilee. It's a place uh, on the borderlands, right? The, The people of Israel on their northern border. You've got the Gentiles, the nations out there. So you might expect to find foreigners in Galilee. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles, that region that Jesus is walking around. Uh, Yet, uh, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, in the Jewish places of, you know, gathering and worship. Uh, Making it clear that, you know, Matthew's making it clear that Jesus' mission was to go first to the Jews, even though he's here in these borderlands uh, where you might run into foreigners. He's going explicitly to the Jews first, going to these synagogues. And we'll talk more about that later uh, next week when we look at uh, Jesus' instructions to the apostles to do the same thing, uh, to imitate him in his mission, to go first to the Jews. Uh, in a sense, what he's doing is giving the Jews the first right of refusal to the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. Here, you can participate in it. goes to the Jews because they have the first right of refusal. Matthew is writing to these Jews uh, who might have criticized Jesus' followers for being um, maybe too quick to abandon the Jews and to go out to the Gentiles, to the nations, the foreigners. But <clears throat> Matthew's trying to show how faithful Jesus is to his people. And so God made so many promises to the people of Israel that he would faithfully fulfill. And, um, and he would give that particular people every opportunity to join him in his kingdom, in what he's doing in the world. So the Son of God became not just a human being, he became a Hebrew. And he went to the Hebrews. So the faithful Lord, the Spirit-filled Son of God incarnate, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, that literally gospel means good news. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. So this is the ministry of the faithful God in the flesh, the work of the true king of God's kingdom. And this ministry is already, it's radically different uh, from the work of other kings, earthly kings, who are trying to build empires and conquer the world, right? Earthly kings, uh, they go to the big cities, they seek the stage of big political forums, they look to build networks with important influential people. The Lord Jesus walked around the countryside and he went to small villages, and he went to insignificant people. Earthly kings seek to gather and consolidate power for themselves, to be able to impress with their superior strength and to rule through intimidation and threats of violence, ultimately to, to rule through fear. The Lord Jesus reveals good news, and he heals people. And it might not be obvious anymore just how strange it is that the message Jesus proclaims is called the good news of the kingdom. That that's so strange that this king would come proclaiming good news. Earthly kings make many promises. Uh, Usually their rhetoric is divisive. It's warlike. And they look to inspire you to follow them and their vision. They look to inspire you uh, really through fear. You know, if you don't get on board with what they're doing, it's bad news for you in some way or another. And their promises, uh, the promises of earthly kings, turn out to be empty. And even if they materialize in some way, it's ultimately unfulfilling. 
And it's the same, uh, not just with earthly kings, you know, political rulers, but with religious rulers, religious leaders in this world, even many Christian teachers. The message they proclaim is moralistic. It can be subtle. It can be subtle, but, um, you know, because religious leaders are often so charismatic that they, they fool you. Uh, but <clears throat> they try to drive people towards some compelling vision, usually motivated by some form of guilt and shame, uh, which basically distills out again to a message of fear. If you don't live this way, if you don't follow this leader, then it's bad news for you in some way, shape, or form. So I like what Tim Keller says about this. Uh, he says the gospel, which is what Jesus preaches, and it's what we preach in his name, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is what we do. News is a report of what's been done for us. Right, so <clears throat> I would suggest that a political or religious message that boils down to good advice essentially means bad news, actually. It's not good news. It's ultimately bad news because the fundamental message of good advice really is meant to appeal to people who think that they can change the world. It's meant to appeal to people, you can fix the world if you just do this and that, if you just do it right. If you don't, the world won't be fixed, things will be bad. <clears throat> but good advice appeals to people who think they can fix the world, and that's bad news because the scriptures say everywhere we can't, we can't do that. It's a hopeless project trying to fix the world because of our sin. <clears throat> so instead, Jesus comes proclaiming good news. Good news about who God is about what his kingdom is like, about what his plans are for us. Good news about what he's promised, what he's said to us, what he's done to save us, and what he will do. Good news, it's, it's so good to be chosen by him to participate in his kingdom. So what do you feel when you hear good news? Just think of any good news, any old good news you might have heard in your life. What do you feel? What kind of uh, things does it evoke in you? Joy? Hope? Love, a sigh of relief, thanksgiving, celebration, security, sense of peace. That's what good news feels like. When the Lord Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, it evokes these things in us on a cosmic scale because his kingdom is better, his kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of this world, and nothing can make the good news of his kingdom come untrue. So the gospel isn't just merely a feel-good message, like, hey, anything that makes me feel good must be the gospel, <clears throat> right? Um, the gospel definitely doesn't come across to everyone like just what we wanted to hear. Um, but it certainly is good. It's good news according to God's definition of good, and, uh, and anyone who's interested in what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ can hear the gospel for what it is. Um, Rome. Rome was one of the greatest empires <clears throat> that this world has ever known. And uh, one of its own historians and politicians, Tacitus, uh, in his writings, characterized Rome's imperial rule this way. He said, Rome makes a desert and calls it peace. That's how Rome works. That's the kind of peace Rome brings. Rome makes a desert and calls it peace. The great power of Rome was in its military might, its ability to conquer and to take and to crush any who oppose or resist to create a nice, quiet wasteland everywhere they went. And that's not peace. That's just desolation. That's solitude. That's emptiness. That's silence. That's the trajectory of the power and the rule of earthly kings. 
Every earthly nation looks to exercise a similar kind of power. Maybe we have the power to make others leave us alone. Maybe we have the power to make others give us what we want. That doesn't establish peace. Not true peace. The Lord Jesus brings true peace. He brings true shalom, as the Hebrew scriptures call it and talk about it. That is, he makes things new. He makes things how they're supposed to be. He heals things and restores them and makes them whole according to God's will and by God's own power and authority and in God's way. So he heals every affliction. That's what it says in our passage. He heals every affliction, those of body and soul and mind and spirit, relational afflictions, spiritual afflictions. He heals them all. He restores people to God. He restores people to each other. He brings us on a totally different trajectory. That one that was divisive and warlike, he brings us together. He unites us in wholeness in his kingdom. His kingdom is one of compassion and mercy and grace and love. He's the shepherd king who faithfully cares for his people, like a good shepherd. So when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. We find that in John's gospel. Uh, really, he's the one that we're talking about when we pray or sing Psalm 23, which we've sung a couple times already, and uh, we're actually going to use it as a confession of faith after the sermon. Um, the Lord Jesus is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That's what we're saying. And that's good news to hear, and that's good news to believe, and it's good news to confess. It's good news to share with other people. So when he looked out on the crowds in the region of Galilee, his compassion was stirred up. That word for compassion is really pretty intense. It's like saying his heart went out or his guts went out. (laughs) He was moved in his guts at this deep level. For the people, those people who had been harassed and bullied and oppressed and abused by powers that were beyond their control, spiritual powers, earthly powers that were representing spiritual powers, Yes, they had been oppressed by, you know, just the Roman occupiers. Or, yes, they'd been oppressed by their own just religious leaders. These evil shepherds that we read about in Ezekiel 34 that John read in our Old Testament reading. But more so, they were harassed by spiritual powers, ultimately. Last week, we saw an example of this in the uh, passage that was right before this. A demon-oppressed man who was uh, mute because of the oppression, the spiritual oppression that he faced. So when people are in bondage to sin, when they're, in, when they're slaves to fear, when they're helpless to escape the clutches of the powers of darkness to which we have made ourselves captive through our sin, that moves the Lord Jesus in his guts to have compassion like a good shepherd. And he's not powerless in his compassion. He's not frustrated by spiritual powers We might be helpless before them, harassed and helpless, but he is the Lord. Then he said to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. So there's a bit of a change in agricultural metaphors here from tending a flock to tending a field now. Uh, When Jesus looks with compassion on the crowds who need him, that's what fundamentally they're defined by. Their life is defined by their need for a good shepherd for him. he also sees this crop he sees a crop that's prepared it's ripe, it's ready for the harvest 
he sees people who need him. They might not even be aware of their need for him, but they do need him. They need to be delivered from the domain of darkness. They need to be set free from sin. They need to be saved from themselves. They need to be restored and reconciled to God and renewed in his image. And when Jesus looks, he sees people like this, people who are desperately in need of him, in in need of a relationship with him. And he calls that a ripe and ready harvest. Hopefully that doesn't sound creepy. Jesus is talking about harvesting people. Uh, It's a metaphor. It is meant, though, to sound strange because no one else would look at these people who are in desperate need and say, harvest. And that's okay. We don't recognize the harvest. Jesus doesn't call us to recognize the harvest. He says there's a harvest and we're to do something about it. That's, <clears throat> we would say, you know, harvest the best and the brightest. Harvest the, gl- the glamorous, the strong. Harvest the noble, the winners. Harvest those with something to offer this kingdom when they come in. The movers and shakers. Harvest those who will really impress others with their greatness. And instead, Jesus looks at people who are falling apart without him, at people whose lives uh, have been ruined through their own doing, through sin and the fall. He looks at people who have been able to do nothing about their own oppression at all, at people really who have nothing to offer his kingdom, and he looks at them, and he says, There's the harvest. It's ready. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly. So he knows exactly what to do about this harvest. About the sheep who need good shepherding, about the people whose misery has evoked his compassion, about people who need him. He knows what to do. Prayer. Earnest prayer. That's what has to happen. Uh... Not vision casting, not strategizing, not fundraising, not resourcing, not equipping, not first anyway. Jesus doesn't talk about that. First is prayer. Prayer specifically to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field, into his harvest. And then, as a little demonstration, the Lord of the harvest just does just that. He sends out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's the same language that was used to describe Jesus' own healing power in the previous chapter, in in verse 35. So you see how unhelpful that little chapter break was. You might not have noticed a detail like that if you stopped reading at chapter 9. So when Jesus goes to all the disciples who've been following him, And he calls out these particular 12 to send them out in this ministry. He is being the compassionate shepherd. He is being the Lord of the harvest, sending laborers out to tend his flock, tend his field. His compassion manifests in sending out the disciples. The mission that he sends us on is the avenue for his shepherding love, his compassion. He's been sent by by God into the world because people need him. And he sees how desperately people need him. So he sends us out to give himself to the world through our lives, through our ministry. Right? He sends us out on his behalf, on his own mission, with his own authority to heal every disease and affliction, 
just like he does. <clears throat> what kind of king shares his own power like this? What kind of person not only has divine authority to do all these things, doesn't hoard it for himself. He gives this authority to others. This is nothing like the rulers of this world, but this is what the scriptures have always revealed about God from the very beginning. God created the world, and he created us. And yes, there is a vast difference between the creator and his creation, between God and us, but he didn't lord that over us. He shared his own place in the creation with us. He invited us to have dominion over everything he's made. He granted us his own authority to bring the world to greater glory. So the the Lord Jesus is the same God in the flesh, the Son sent on a mission by the Father, the true King exercising God's own authority, uh, doing so as a human being. And not only exercising it himself, but sharing God's own authority with his people, just as God has always done. He gives his people the privilege of participating in what he's doing. That's the good news of the scriptures from the very beginning, the glorious theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. God gives his people the privilege of participating in his own life in the world. Think about that. That'll consume your thoughts for the rest of your life. God gives his people the privilege of participating in his own life in the world. And he does this ultimately through Jesus Christ, through our relationship with him. Jesus had uh, just instructed his disciples to pray, and then the Lord of the harvest makes them the answer to that prayer, right? Um, the, The privilege of participating in his own mission. It's really only a privilege if you love him. It's the only way you can view it as a privilege is if you love what he's doing, if you love his kingdom, if you love his power, a unique kind of power, his glory extending in the world. This privilege is given uh, not just to the 12 disciples, whom he calls out here, but really to all who love his coming into the world. Yes, the 12 disciples, they're in some ways a special class. They're a unique group. They're chosen out from among this larger group of disciples who uh, were following Jesus in those days. Uh, These in particular are the apostles. That means they're the sent ones. Um, They're eyewitnesses of Jesus sent out into the world to be this sort of foundation for the new people. In the, of God in the world, uh, particularly uh, they're the foundation of the church through the preaching of the gospel and the writing of the scriptures. And so they are sort of a special group, but in another sense, the, the 12 are, um, are really meant to be representative of all God, God's people. They're representative. That's, we've considered this recently, that number 12, that's symbolic, that's representative. The 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, that in, that That number was meant to include all of God's people. And now these 12 disciples, apostles, that constitute a new Israel and their descendants are spiritual. They're born from the word that is proclaimed through faith in the gospel. So the same invitation to prayer extends not just to them, but to us. And the same privilege of participation stands not just before them, but before us. The Lord of the harvest takes people who are defined by their need of him and he shares his life with them. And then he sends them out to others who are also defined by their need of him to share the life of God with them. And at no point in this process is Jesus dealing with impressive people who have everything together. At no point ever. 
what makes you useful to him, if we can put it that way at all, is that you know you need him. It's an utterly different kind of world-conquering power that we see in Jesus. In his compassion, Jesus sent out this motley crew as under-shepherds, as laborers in his field. When you read this list of the twelve, uh, you know, a few things stand out. First, and most prominently, is Simon, who his head is as hard as a rock. That's, that's why maybe Jesus named him the rock. <laughs> I always think of, uh, you know, that actor and wrestler, The Rock. <laughs> I mean, it's always a mix of good and bad with this guy, with Peter, <clears throat> with Simon Peter, The Rock. It's always a mix of good and bad. He is by no means a shining example of Christian perfection at no point in his life. Read about later in the scriptures. Paul's got problems with him in Galatians, etc. <clears throat> but he's always identified as the leader of the disciples in all the lists of the apostles. Every time the gospels list the twelve apostles. First Peter. First Simon, who's called Peter, right? So the apostles don't get any better than him. And that is an encouraging thought. Uh, in case you were worried that complete boneheads might be excluded from the privilege of participating in God's work in this world. Nope, the rock is number one on all the lists. And and then down the list, you've got Matthew, including himself, uh, calling out the shame of his old job, his old life as a tax collector. I mean, he doesn't have to put his resume in there, his tarnished reputation out there. But he did. Broken, messed up people are given the divine privilege of participating in the life of Christ. And Jesus gives us this privilege together. In the church, he brings us together around himself and around his work in the world. That togetherness is highlighted just by the fact that this is a big group uh, named together, but it's also highlighted by these pairings that are made here. Maybe it's easy to miss that as you're reading through, but <clears throat> it says Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, etc., all the way through the list, which probably reflects how Jesus sent them out two by two, which is what we have recorded for us explicitly in Mark's gospel, <clears throat> you go out in pairs, you work together, right? You're brought together. So you've got Simon the Zealot, and the Zealots were a, a religious and political group that violently opposed Roman rule. And then uh, and you have Matthew the tax collector who was working for the Romans. And this guy would have hated people like Matthew the tax collector, and yet Jesus catches us up into the life and the love of the triune God together, and it means fellowship with each other in this mission. For Jesus to have fellowship with any of us at all means that he forgives sinners by the grace of God, and he gives us the privilege of welcoming each other in his name so that our fellowship reflects the grace of God that overcomes all our divisions. And that's a huge way in which his mission is done through us. His kingdom work in this world is done through us when people like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector come together in the name of Jesus, in the grace of Jesus, in the love of God, in the fellowship of the Spirit. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He's always last in all the lists. He's literally the worst. 
And Jesus opens his life up to him and shares his calling and authority, even with him. I'm not sure that we can entirely make sense of that, humanly speaking. Uh, You know, Judas's place in God's kingdom. But clearly the lordship of Jesus makes room for completely unexpected people to participate in his own work in the world. And most of the rest of these guys on this list are pretty much nobodies that we know almost nothing about. And uh, so Stanley Hauerwas says, the disciples are not impressive people. But then neither are we. Their mission, as well as our own, is not to call attention to ourselves, but to Jesus and the kingdom. We need Jesus. And uh, because he loves us, he's given himself to us and he's opened his life to us. Others also need Jesus, the good shepherd, in his compassion. And uh, he sends us to them. And he gives us to them, even as the Father has given him. And he gives himself to them, even through people like us. That's the good news of this very strange kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so often we're glad um, that you sent your son for us, but are less glad about being sent out in the same way. We pray that you'd forgive us our fears or our selfish, uh, selfish reluctance to go out to others in the name of Jesus. We pray that you'd make our hearts to resonate with the good news of your kingdom so that we consider it our greatest privilege, not just to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus, but to share it with others who need it just like we do. You've demonstrated throughout history that you're happy to gather broken and sinful people to yourself and even to use people like us to proclaim the good news of your kingdom. So we pray that you would show us your glory in this as you catch us up in what you are doing in this world. We pray in your name. Amen.